Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Don't Miss This Podcast, a Come Follow Me study with Emily Bell Freeman and David Butler. We fill this show up with all the things we think you don't want to miss in the scriptures every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Dave Butler. I'm Emily Freeman. Welcome to Don't Miss This. It's our Follow Through the Scriptures podcast. This year we're in the New Testament. If it's your first week, welcome. If it's your 112th week, Has it welcome. even been 112 weeks? Well, yeah, there's 52 weeks in a year. Yeah, We've so been doing it's like it your, could be years, like so. your 400th. No, yeah. that's too far. That's too many. Two, 100, 200, 200 something. Yeah. yeah that's the maximum. Okay, fun. 200 something. Should we give a prize if to it, someone who's been, if it's your two? never missed one. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. You know when you get, you know that kid at the end of the school year who's never missed a day of school and he gets that award and you just can't fathom no, 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 how no. he did that? I can't even connect this to that because I can't do that kid. Sorry if you're that kid. God bless you. <laughs> I'm really happy for you, but you had a really boring school life. <laughs> Wait, you might have just loved school. You had, I had to skip. You had to skip some. David, um, meanwhile, had to take a break once a month. From school? Yes. Once a month? <laughs> that's generous. Yeah, yeah, that's generous. And I can't get mad at Jack because Jack, gra- oh, graduation. By the time you watch, everyone, by the time you watch this, Jack will be graduated <laughs> from high school if all my prayers work. <laughs> like, seriously, since kindergarten, getting that child to school has been. So I just want to send a blessing and a thank you to all his teachers <laughs> over the years. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Every so, parent is yeah, so happy. Happy right summer. Now. It's summertime, I bet, by the time you watch this. In the United or States. Or at least close to is it. Is it summertime in, the, uh, in like New Zealand and Australia? Or do they go to school in these months? Somebody tell us. I'm interested. No, they don't go to What? Maybe. Actually, I don't know. I know. <laughs> do they call it summer? Uh, we don't know. Winter. We will be educated. Yeah. Someone, poor Maria. Everyone, don't everyone tell Maria. Yeah, just actually, we'll Google it. We'll just Google it, everybody. <laughs> or Maria will have to read all those emails about summer. We'll just Google it, and we'll know awesome. for, for next week. Um, we are getting into the last chapters of the Gospels, which is these last weeks and these last events of, of the life of Jesus. And so we're getting into, ah, man, some of the richer chapters and some of the reasons why he came to the world, right? Like, we love that he is a, a God of miracles, and we've seen that throughout the entire thing, and his messages have been so sweet. But his mission was to come into the world to save the world. And, and that is these last week that we're getting into and all the events um, surrounding that. So we are right at the spot before, um, before Crucifixion Friday will come. A lot of debate about which day of the week it is and all of that, but it's it's the, one of his last days where he's going to come together with his disciples in a really close-knit circle and have this, what we, we call the Last Supper. Which I love because I think all of us can a little bit relate to those kinds of emotions. Like for him, this really is the last of everything that he's doing. The last time he will participate in any of these Things. It's his last Passover yeah. also that he will have on earth. And just to imagine how sweet that is, all of us probably have had experiences where, um, like I think about when our family left on a mission and just going through, these are the last moments of this or even graduation. It's yeah, such a great, great example of your mind just can't help but like 
hold on a little more tenderly because everything is yeah. the last. And so don't you love that the Last Supper is just like in his mind, sweeter yeah. a little bit mm -hmm. because it's going to be the last. And maybe when we read in here, um, each of these tender, like these scenes are so tender mm -hmm. when you think about it like mm -hmm. that. And as we read them to be thinking about that, it's interesting because in Mark 13, he's just finishing up that discourse on I'm all of Jerusalem's going to fall apart and I'm going to leave and all of these things are going to happen. And it is those moments that you just have those last moments where you're like, okay, these are my final words. These are my final instructions. These are things you need to know before I leave. And, and that's actually making next week too seem like way more intriguing to my mind. Yeah. Like this week and next week of the idea of like, okay, here's the end you know, the end scene, here are things that you are going to experience. Remember, he actually spent some time telling the disciples, not only signs of the second coming, but this is what your lives are going to look like carrying the message forward. And he's just going to give them, make practice these virtues and, and practice these principles. And, and this is what will carry not only you through, but will carry the message forward, you know? Yeah, and I love that some people get it. Some people, as he's going through, are like, wait a minute, something is different. Mm -hmm. Part of what he's teaching is different. They're leaning into that in a different way. And some people don't have any idea um, what's happening. But we're going to meet over the next couple weeks people who are processing, okay, wait, what's about to happen right now? And, and today we meet one of those people, and it's this woman who shows up in Mark 14, right at the very beginning, um, as one of our favorite women in scripture. And we just, there's something about this story that draws us in. It tells us in verse three, being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment and spikenard, very precious. And she break the box and poured it on his head. And we love the thought just getting into this before we even talk about what we learn or what happens next of thinking about this alabaster box. When I was in Egypt uh, many years ago, we went to a place where there were men that were just sitting in this courtyard and they were working with alabaster. And it was fascinating. I just, I sat there and watched them work um, and they were carving out of stone these alabaster boxes or these little vessels that it would hold in here and alabaster is really unique and I hadn't realized it until I actually saw an alabaster box but you'll see them at restaurants sometimes candle holders because they're really translucent on the inside if you were to put light in here you can actually see it reflect out of the stone um, and it's fragile also so you have to be very careful with it and I love that what happened is she would bring that spikenard and she would put it in this, just oil dripped into this box that she kept. And because it was very precious, it means it was worth a lot of money. And so some people would say this would have been her life savings. This is like a, a bank account. It's a savings account. It, it maybe would have been what she was planning on for retirement are words that we would all use. And, and sealed shut to preserve the ointment that's in there. Yes. And so 
when you break it open, now you have has to, to be it. used. Yeah. So that's why when, if it's sealed and kept, then it can be passed down and, and it's sold worth again. Something. And it's worth something, right? Yep. But as soon as it's broken open, um, and we love in this picture, if you're watching on video, that you can see that she really has broken open this alabaster box that she's going to use to anoint the Savior. And immediately, people who are in the room get kind of worked up over this, and they say, why was this waste of ointment made? Like, this feels like a little bit frivolous for her to be, why is she doing this? Um, because they could have sold it for more than 300 pence. It could have been given to the poor. Like there's a lot of other things we could be using this for other than putting it on the Savior's head. He doesn't really need it and she shouldn't have really gifted it is the conversation that is taking place in the room. And, and it's so interesting that they want to call it a waste. Like how do you count something worth as much as this as a waste? Mm. You know? Aren't you interested by that word? And he says, let her alone. Why are you troubling her? She has wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always. And whatsoever ye will, you may do to them for good. But me, you have not always. And it is going to be this moment where some people are starting to realize, okay, there's something happening here. Um, that is taking place that feels different. And this woman is one of those who, who just was like, I need to cherish, cherish these last moments. And mm. I want to be part of these last words and the last conversations. And it's something I want to not only hold on to, but we love that she brought her finest into that part of his story. And there's an interesting line that says in verse 8, it says, she hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. And I love that thought of she has done what she could. Um, mm -hmm. Just thinking about like she, she did what was her best. She brought her best and that might look different for everyone. But you can translate those words differently to say she hath brought what she holds or what she keeps. And I love the thought of that. She brought what she holds precious or what she keeps close. And that's what she's giving in this moment. And there's such an interesting lesson in that wording, in that language. The worksheet for this week. Well, and let me say something about yeah. this that I've never really thought through. I mean, I have, but just haven't seen the words in verse 8, where it's to anoint my body to the burying that she has his death on her mind. Yeah. And that is actually what's causing what mm. she did. You know, and, and there would be a couple of ways of like bringing your finest. And one would be like, oh, for, rec for attention. One would be uh, to get something out of it. But there's something powerful about her saying, oh, I did this with your death on my mind. Knowing what you would break open and give has is what's causing me to do this in a way. And I always want to give her the pen to the scriptures because we yes. get the complaints, you know, this is a waste. And I want to ask her, well, why did you do it? Yeah. You know, and, and let her tell her story. Let her tell her reasoning for why she would break open that box, why she sees 
him so precious, you know, to her. Yeah, like and, there's that deep reverence right. that is signified in, and, in this. And it's interesting that it's like, there's a hint to it in that verse eight that it's like, because I know what he's going to do for me, you know, and I know what he's done for me. Yeah. And that's why it's causing me to... Yeah, get, look through everything that I own and think, what could I give um, that, that would equal my gratitude for what you're about to do. And, right. and this, is the, this is the most precious thing I own. I love when it says in there, very precious. Yeah, and, and like you taught last week, she's like, I, I will match precious for precious. You will spill your precious blood for yeah. me. And so I will try and give what is most precious yes. that I own. And in I'm, reflection of gratitude, this is, an, this is an act of deep gratitude. Yes. It's a response to yeah. what he has done and will do. Yeah, which is so beautiful. And as we um, enter into this lesson, we're going to be talking a lot about that deep gratitude. We're going to be talking a lot about um, intimate moments like this. And I love that one of the things, um, and I don't know if you were suggesting this, but you made me think of it, when it says... Um, she has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying because she knows what he's about to do. And it makes me think that this was a sacrament moment for her. Mm. This was a moment of pondering his death. Mm. That's what it looked right. like to her. And for us, it doesn't look like breaking open the alabaster box necessarily, but we do actually get to participate in this type of worship every Sunday, because we get to think on him and the burial. Don't you think that's so interesting? Yeah, and yeah. do we bring our finest to that meeting once a week? And are we prepared? Like, imagine her thinking through what she was going to take and, you know, just entering into that. Um, the worksheet for today is going to ask that question. When have you broken open the alabaster box? And what was the cost? And I think it's interesting to think that there is actually a cost to entering into deeper relationship with him. There actually is a cost. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to um, have um, more of this or less of that. Yeah. And it's not a demand, but it's just definition of what relationship actually means. Yes. It's like relationship by law of relationship requires sac deep sacrifice. Yeah. It requires giving something up, you know, to. Yeah. I love when Michelle Craig said, what should I stop doing and what should I start doing? And just to think about like there, it, there was for her a calculated how do I express my devotion in this relationship by bringing what is most precious and it will cost me something. And if, oh, were you done? Sorry. And if you're, because I was saying, if you're filling this out, I would all, I would connect it to love. I, mm. It will only be powerful if you can connect it to, if you, if his burial is on your mind, if what he's done is on your mind and whatever this is, is a reflection of it. If it's to be good, if it's for reputation, if it's to get a mansion in heaven. Scorekeeping. It, it just, it will, it will not have the, the it, it won't be that authentic, sacrificial love type experience. So I, I would, before I filled this out, and as I consider breaking open the alabaster box, I, I think I would start with like, wait, 
let me think first of what he's done yes for me what am i grateful now how will for? i reflect that back yeah. You know? yeah, how will I express that gratitude? And this might be something you do one evening or it might be something that you think about right before you go to your sacrament meeting on Sunday and then spend time thinking through that moment where we do reflect on his burial and, and everything that has to do with that. And then maybe you'll come home and say, okay, these are my thoughts now. And I love that in the picture that you put up here, she has fallen to her knees, which is a sign of deep gratitude or deep reverence for someone. And I just, I love that. What is your fall to your knees moment? What is your alabaster box? What is the cost of reverence for him? What are we willing to give up? Now I want to connect that um, broken box with the broken heart that he oh, asks for us in the so sacrament. Good. I'm like, my mind is like doing that right now. And I'm like, oh, there's something really cool there. Yeah. Um, after this woman shows up, they, they go into what we call the Last Supper. But you might want to know, especially if you studied last year, the Old Testament, bringing this together, that the Last Supper is a Passover meal. You find that out um, in verse 12, Mark 14, 12, where he says, let's go and actually prepare a Passover. That seems to be the kind of meal that they are sharing, not just a spaghetti dinner or something, right? Yeah. But it's, oh, we're actually having the ritual Passover meal. And we want to take you back to Exodus chapter 14 to just re get remind us of the story and the, the experience that they are having. There's a line in Exodus 14 that actually points forward several to what's actually happening at, at, at this meal. And so you remember the children of Israel, they were slaves to Pharaoh. And, and he was a ruthless leader and he was um, uh, terrible to them. And by 14, I actually mean 13, everyone. <laughs> I was so excited for them to go through the Red Sea that I wrote 14. <laughs> But you like, because you just want them to. You just love that scene in Prince of Egypt. So Exodus 13 is, is where I want to go. Um, but that's, the situation is still the same, where they have just, and they've pled for deliverance, and they've pled, pled and prayed for relief. And this has been generational prayers. Like, we, we, mm. like my grandparents prayed for this, and their grandparents paid, prayed for this. And Moses comes, and there's all of these plagues, right, that are trying to soften up the heart of Pharaoh and, and let them go and... And uh, nothing is working. And finally, the Lord comes. He says, there's a, there's a tenth plague that's coming. And, and uh, it's going to affect everybody. And the firstborn will die in every family in all of, of Egypt. And it will be worse than, than anything that we've experienced before. And, and he actually says, like, this will affect everyone. Some of the plagues didn't. Yeah. But this plague seems to be symbolic of something that impacts everybody in the whole world. And, and, and then he says this, but there is a way that you can um, uh, escape this um, plague. And oh my gosh, it's Exodus 12, everybody. <laughs> I started looking at 13. I was like, where's that verse I love so much? It's not even there. It got, it got moved. Okay, everyone. Every time I say 14, I, I mean minus two. Do you know why? Because 14 is David's number. I think I'm just stuck on it. Oh my gosh. I'm just stuck on it. It's like internal, my DNA. Oh, that is so um, funny. Exodus 12 is the real chapter, y'all. I'm not changing my mind. 
And it starts in two and it says this, this month will be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Um, there was another month that was the first month of the year. And what the Lord is saying, what's about to happen tonight is so, it's going to make such an impact and such a difference that you'll start counting time differently. Like it will be so revolutionary that that's what you're, what you're going to do. And he says in three, I want everybody on the 10th day to go get a lamb for your house. Each house has a different lamb. And then he says, and 14, if it's too, if your house is too small, invite your neighbors. That's better. And then in five, he says, describes the lamb. And this should sound familiar. It should be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you will set it aside from, take it out from the sheep or the goats. To set, to set aside the word, that word is to, um, is Christos in Greek, right? To anoint for a certain purpose. You're going to bring that aside. So verse five, if you're teaching this in Sunday school, I would stop on verse five and say, who do you see in, in verse five? There's some neat symbolism there to see Jesus there. And he says, and you'll keep it in verse six until the 14th day of that same month. And then you will kill that lamb in the evening. Now, this would also be really cool to consider that if you go back a couple verses and you say, wait, what day did they get it on? And you say, oh, on the 10th day. And which day did they kill the lamb? On the 14th day, which means depending on how you count, three or four days of that lamb actually living in your house. And if you have kids, you know what has happened in those three days. Like everyone has become so endeared. They've named it. And I think that's actually part of the significance of, of this event that the Lord is doing. He's trying to teach them a lesson here. And, and part of the lesson is, I need you to be endeared to this innocent, sweet animal. Like I need you to like be connected to it. And I need you to develop like a, you know, a, what, you know, a like connection, you, a connection. Mm-hmm. because then when that lamb dies on the evening of the 14th day, I, I need it to be a heartbreaking moment in order for it to symbolize what it actually symbolizes. And, and they will kill it on that evening. And then he says, you will take the blood of it and you will strike it on the posts and the, and the, and the tops of your house. And then that plague is going to pass over um, that home is what is going to happen. And I want you to share a meal. I actually want you to eat that lamb. And then he says in verse eight, and I want you to eat it with unleavened bread. And I want you to eat it with bitter herbs also. And I want you to share that meal together um, on the night that that plague will pass over you. And, And that's exactly what happens is that plague passes over. And it would be interesting if you're a firstborn child, this night would have been particularly emotional for you. And this would be a great question to ask in a Sunday school class. Like, who's a firstborn? You know, and, and have them think through this for a second because as they sat at that meal, what they would think to themselves is, the only reason I'm going to live is because that lamb died. It was either me or that lamb. And, and anyone else who loves the first kid <laughs> in, in the house is going to say, it was either that lamb or, or my son or my daughter here. And... and, and and there's something significant ab- about that. And verse 12 says, I will pass over any home that's marked with the blood of that sacrificial lamb. And he says in 13, these are great words. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see that blood, I will pass over you. And 14 says this, 
And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. In other words, he says, I actually want you to have this meal again every single year. And I want you to commemorate and remember what happened on this night every single year. Now, in the journal, there's a a spot in there where we talk about the elements of that Passover meal and what they use to teach the story. So every year they would do this. They would gather all of these food items together and the family would sit down and he actually gives the script later, the Lord does, and he says, the youngest kid in the family is going to ask, Dad, why are we eating um, bitter herbs? And he'll answer back and say, oh, we're eating these to remember the bitterness of slavery and the bitterness of what our life was like when we were pleading for redemption. And then that unleavened bread that's there. In that, he says, why are we eating it like this? Oh, we're eating it because God saved us overnight. That things were one way for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, he just said, I'm going to rescue you in a single night. And we want to remember that. And we also want to remember what it takes to make bread. That it has to be kneaded and it has to be broken and it has to be like put into a fiery furnace in order. All these things have to happen to the bread in order for you to actually be able to eat. And, and why are we drinking this wine, Dad? And he says, well, you are not young children going to, <laughs> right? But at some point, wine comes into um, the Passover meal. And it's actually, um, when they talk about, wait, why did wine come into it? There's lots of reasons that they say. One most common way is, oh, they're actually the four different words in Exodus 6, the four types of redemption words that he uses there. You can go look that up. It's Exodus 6, 5 through 6. I promise it's actually that chapter this time. (laughs) Um, And also that it's a royal drink and that you will only free people, only kings and queens drink something like this. And we were slaves, but God set us free. And it's something that we remember. And so they tell the Exodus story. So, and they did it every single year. Every single year. So Jesus, as a little boy, would sit around the table and he'd ask whoever was the head of the feast, why, you know, that was his job. Mm -hmm. Why are we doing this? And here he is as a man now with his friends and they've gathered together for this feast and they are retelling the story of the night that God set them free. Now, what's interesting is he's actually going to switch the script a little bit for them and, and change the story from the Exodus story to a new redemption story. And one of the hints to that is the fact that the, all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they talk about this Passover meal and they mention bread and they mention wine and they mention other items on the table, but sort of like conspicuously, none of them mention the main course. None of them mention the lamb. Which is super interesting because we've both eaten the Passover dinner before and like none of it is it's all very like bitter herbs who and wanted to eat quick. that yeah yeah right and everything that you're eating is just these little tiny tastes of these things that you actually the best part of the meal for sure is the lamb yeah so it seems like you would have mentioned the best part of the meal or and, even the the fact that he's like 
when he comes in for the triumphal entry and he's like, and, and you're going to go, you're going to find the man who has two colts, you're going to bring it. Or remember when they find the upper room and he's like, the guy who has a pitcher of water, like in your mind, you're like, why didn't they talk about getting the lamb? Right. It was the most like in Jesus's day, um, that Passover, you came, everyone gathered to Jerusalem. That's why Jerusalem's so crowded is because everyone's there for the Passover. And that's because the place that you get the sacrificial lamb is at the temple. You have to go to the temple to get this particular sacrificed lamb for the Passover meal. So it would have had the most work, the most details. Yeah. It would have been the central, it's the central part of the story. It's the blood of the lamb that's on the door. It's all of these things. And so it is so weird that none of them mention the lamb on the table. And the reason might be is because the lamb is not on the table, but the lamb is sitting at the table. And that night, Jesus does, in fact, become the Passover lamb. We love as he goes through this um, Passover conversation with them, and they're having this back and forth about the Passover, that it gets to Mark 14, verse 22, and now we're going to start noticing something a little bit different in the Passover ritual, but that feels really familiar to us who understand sacrament ritual, because he's going to start in 22. And he says, um, and as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and break it and gave to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. And I love that that word take can also be translated as receive. Um, I just think that's such a beautiful thought to think, even every time we reach for the sacrament, receive and eat. Because you're receiving a lot more than a broken piece of bread. You're receiving him in that moment. And I just, I love that thought of receive and how, how could I be using that word and that intention more often in my just not just my worshiping, but in the ordinances and the covenants that I'm making mm. with him. What does receiving actually look like? And it and I think receiving requires something yeah. of you. You know, it's not just like a I'd, without thinking take. Receiving actually requires more of me than just the motion of my hand. Right. To take something. Because he could have just said, eat this. But it's, yeah. it is interesting. He says, take it. Yeah then eat it. Yes. You know? Yeah. Like there's, and the commas in there make me want to pause Yes. when I read that. And that think about it. And, and, and he's like, receive it and then take it inside of you. Yeah. Is the symbolism that is happening right there, which I just think is beautiful symbolism. And then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. And this is what I love about this verse is it's going to reflect backwards and forwards at the same time. Immediately, it's going to reflect backward to Genesis 15, to that covenant of grace. And you will remember that from our Old Testament study, but it's one of our favorite um, places that describes what covenant worship or covenant relationship looks like. And it's the night when God gives Abraham a promise. And Abraham says, but how will I know that it's going to happen? And then the Lord says to him, you need to go get a goat and a heifer and um, 
I can't remember all the things and two birds, birds and everything and, that yeah, you're going to yeah, yeah. need. And you're going to take them and you're going to cut them in half and you're going to lay them aside of each other. And then what would happen in those days is how the covenant was made. It was called cutting a covenant. And how it was made is one person would stand at one end and the other would stand at the other end of the animals and you would walk through at the same time. And in essence, what you were saying is, if I don't keep up my end of the covenant, you can spill my blood just like these animals. And then the other person would say, if I don't keep up my end of the covenant, you can spill my blood just as these animals. That's like a pretty heavy promise, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what you're entering into. And you'll remember Abraham fell asleep after waiting all day long for the Lord to show up. He finally fell asleep and in the very darkest part of the night, he opened his eyes and he saw a flame pass between the covenant pieces, the animals. And what happened in that moment, I love what Elder, what Alfred Adersheim teaches us um, about this experience is only one person walked through and it became a covenant of grace in that moment because in essence what the Lord said is if I don't keep up my end of the bargain or of the promise you can spill my blood and if you don't keep up your end of the covenant you can spill my blood for that and I love that he says to the apostles in Mark 14 24 this is my blood of the new testament or the new covenant which is shed for many. I am about to spill my blood because I know you are not going to be capable of fulfilling the covenant with perfection. I know you won't. And so when you drink this, you need to remember that in that moment of covenant promise, there is grace. I actually spilt my blood for your mistake. That's what's happening right here. And I just think it's so beautiful because I think sometimes we forget that in that moment of the garden, the crucifixion, the resurrection, in that moment of atonement, I love to just think in that very moment, what happened there went backwards for everyone and also went forwards for everyone. That one moment in time had this effect of going back to the old covenant and the new covenant and everywhere in between that there was just that moment where he showed up and followed through and kept his promise and did what he had told Abraham thousands of years before. This is what I will do for you because love, right? And yeah. again, we go back yeah. to the title of, of this whole teaching. What was the cost? Yeah. What was the cost? You know, you think of the cost of the alabaster box and then you think of as you were going through the cost of the lamb. And now we talk about the cost of that covenant of grace and you just watch what was given in love. It makes me want to think, is it received with the same deepness of love? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that there is a within a sacrament meeting service, a reenactment of yeah. the cost, right? There's a brief reenactment of what the cost was before you're given a chance to receive it and before you're given a chance to respond. 
you know, and we might miss it. We might miss it if we're not deliberate mentally and, and emotionally about what's happening there. But really, there is a moment that's happening that's like, let me remind you of, of this cost, you know, of my broken body and my blood that was spilt. And I'm, I'm gifting it to you. Yeah. And I'm asking you to receive this, you know, this gift. Yeah. And every week we get to participate in that covenant ritual of grace and receiving grace. And it's cool because it really is a, it's a story. It's a story. We're being, each week when we go in, we're being told this story. It's, it, you know, the Lord said back in Exodus 12, not 13 <laughs> or 14, but in Exodus 12, in verse 14, he says, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you will keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You will keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. And you're kind of like, why don't we do that anymore? And it's because on that night of Mark 14, Matthew 26, um, he switched the ordinance and he gave actually a new story. Same story. A story of redemption, but with with new characters. This Passover meal, they'd celebrated, and it had been Israel's hallmark story for 1,500 Mm. years. And it had been their identity, right? And it's interesting that this, of all weeks of the year, there's 52 of them, and of all weeks of the year, this was the setting that Jesus chose and the Father chose for the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It was this week. Mm. It was couched in this week in purpose, on purpose. You don't actually find very much in the New Testament about why did Jesus have to go to Gethsemane and why did he have to go to the cross? There isn't long discourses or sermons on that. You you find them in the Book of Mormon, actually. There's great yeah. ones in there, 2 Nephi 2, 2 Nephi 9, Alma 34, Alma 42, right? You find them, King, uh, uh, what's his face, Abinadi, <laughs> Um, he's a king in my mind. Um, you get sermons about it. But in the New Testament, if they were to ask, he actually tells them a story. And he's just like, the setting for this final week is going to be centered in the story of you once were slaves and the blood of the lamb set you free. And Jesus tells them, I want you to now remember a new story. And I don't want you to just do this once a year. I want you to do this every week. Hmm. Because as you go out into the world, you're going to tell yourself a story about yourself. And other people are going to tell you a story about you. And I want you to come back every week and be recentered in this story of grace. And I want you to be recentered in this story of redemption. And I want you to remember that you are under the the push the pressing brutality of a pharaoh. And you're in the chains of, of slavery and, and, the, and my blood sets you free. And I want you to remember that. And I want you to remember that this cost, the cost, you, you know, you come back to that woman and, and if you asked her and you said to her, do you think that was a waste? And I think she would respond back. And I think she'd say to, to Jesus, no, I think you're worth every drop of this. And I imagine his response back to her is like, and, and so are you. And that's the story that's told every, mm. every Sunday. And it's our story. It becomes our story. It becomes the, this is what you'll go into the week with. This is what I want you to face. Depression and anxiety and bankruptcy and 
arguments and, and tragedy. I want you to face it centered in this story of, of who you are and, and, and what I think you are worth. That's what, that's where that ordinance switched mm. and, and it becomes our, our, the story we get to adopt and remind ourselves of every single every week. week. Yeah, which is so beautiful. And there's one other part of this Last Supper that we just love. Um, and we, we love this thought that he meets us in the mess. And I love that he does it every single week. Yeah. Every single week he meets us in the mess, whatever that is. But we get such a beautiful picture of that um, in John. We're going to go to John 13. And um, it tells us this. Um, we're going to start in, uh, I'm going to start right at the very beginning in verse 2. It, I think it's so interesting, and I've been thinking about this today. It says, and supper being ended, and the devil having now put in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, and Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God, which sometimes I want to think about that word, all things, and think, including Judas. Mm -hmm. You know, that he just, dinner's over now, and now this moment is going to happen, which is really interesting because usually a moment like this happens right when you walk in the house. So it, it is absent from the beginning of how that evening should have gone because they come in and normally a servant would have washed the feet of everybody right when they came in. That's just hospitality. That's the way it's done. And nobody did that. They all just came in and they sat down and they ate and now it was going to be the next thing. And then all of the sudden things go backwards, right? Because it's after um, he rose from supper, it tells us, and he laid aside his garments and he took a towel and he girded himself. And in your mind, you're like, wait, we already didn't do this. Don't do it now. It would be my thought mm -hmm. of like, it's fine. We ate dinner and we're about to leave, right? Right. Why would you do this right now? The order feels wrong. Yeah. And he pours. Yeah, you're, you're about to leave the house. Yeah, we're so going to put our shoes don't, back on. Yeah, it's like don't shovel the driveway when it's snowing. Yes, right? It's like yes. you're, you're, you're backwards yeah. in what you're yeah, doing Yeah, there's something here. backwards in this. And I think that's important because it signifies to me that what Jesus is about to do has nothing to do with cleaning feet. And it also wasn't going to satisfy Jewish custom. He did it at the wrong time. Um, there's a, a deeper lesson that is going to take place here. And so he begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. And one of my favorite, I have loved this my whole life. This is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament is this just intimate and quiet moment with the Savior. But it really came to life for me this summer. We had the opportunity, Greg and I, to go to Oberammergau, which is where they do the Passion Play, which is a five-hour play. It's so long, you break for dinner in the middle of the play. And then you go back, and right after dinner is when the Last Supper starts. And you watch that whole thing happen, and it was interesting as we were watching this, um, what was happening on the stage, that it gets to the part after the supper where Jesus is going to start washing everybody's feet. And he really pours water in the basin and then he gets his towel and he kneels down and he washes one and it kind of takes a long time to wash someone's feet, which I had never noticed until I was sitting there 
watching him and he did one and then he did the second one and then the third and then the fourth and then it started getting a little bit awkward in the room like this is taking a long time and in your mind if you were like in charge of the play you might have been like okay the audience will get the idea by now and maybe someone can just say and when he had washed everybody's feet and move on but they didn't the fifth and then the sixth and then the seventh. And after that time, the awkwardness had kind of left and you just settled into this quiet moment, uh, this intimate moment, so personal that he's just washing. That's what he's doing. He's just washing. And it was so quiet while you watched it happen. And so individual, like every person got their own chance for that moment with the savior which was so tender to me and so touching and and there is a moment in this story when he comes to simon peter and peter says to him why are you washing my feet and i'm sure in his mind he's like you know how peter is he's just he's so quick thinking i'm about to put my shoes back on we don't have time for this there's so many other things going on and like you can just see in his life plus i think this too We've been to Israel enough times now to know that the most comfortable shoes to wear in Israel are sandals. It's just so hot and everything is so dusty. And it is true when you go home at night after a day there, your feet are so dirty. In fact, one of the nights, this last time we were there, we were talking about that, how dirty everybody's feet were. It's a mess. Like you imagine that process and you really are. Plus, what about the people who don't even like to touch someone's feet? You know, where it's just, it's (laughs) like that, that thing where you're like, this is such a vulnerable and intimate space to enter into and this mess. And it's almost like Peter is like, listen, I don't want you to touch my mess right now. I don't need you to do this for me. I don't need you to get into my mess. I'm fine. Don't wash my feet. And it's so interesting when the Savior says to him, if I wash you not, you will have no part with me. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying to him, if you don't let me into the mess, into the parts you don't want anyone else to touch, then then you're not fully, you won't fully have part with me. Which is interesting that he is like teaching him that, the way into our close relationship is actually going to be you being okay with me seeing that mess. Yes. Because I've walked into a sacrament meeting before and felt like I don't I don't want you to see yeah, the what's mess going that on. I have and what's going on. And and that actually might keep people and it almost kept Peter from having this really close, sweet moment with him where he's just like, No, I'm actually too embarrassed by what I've done and where where I've been and what I've said and I I don't I don't want you to see that and you don't deserve you you shouldn't be a part of that and I don't deserve right because there's something about worthiness where he's like I'm you should actually not be washing my feet I'm not worthy of like what you are doing right now the role is backwards there's something wrong with the role right and 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 this chapter to me is is an invitation a plea from Jesus where he says, please don't let your dirty feet keep you from me. Mm. Please let me 
wash those feet. Like come in, come, come into this place. And you actually need this place. Yes. And you need this, the story of the sacrament and you need the, you need the washing. That's the very reason that you should be here. And if it's what's keeping you away, then you actually have the, it backwards. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it feels like a, a plea here. And I love in verse 12, this one sentence that I think is so important and worth pondering for all of us. He says uh, in verse 12, know you what I have done to you. I love that there is that moment that he's like, okay, everyone, this has nothing to do with the custom. And this has nothing to do with the condition of your feet. Like, I need you to stop for a minute and I need to ask you this. Do you know what I have just done for you? Um, because that's going to be really important. And I love when Alfred Adersheim talks a little bit about this experience and that there might be more going on here than what is first assumed in that moment. And um, he says... Um, this, there was deep symbolic meaning, not only in that Christ did it, but also in what he did. Submission to his doing it meant symbolically sharing and taking part in his work. What he did meant his work and service of love, which I love that. I love that he's like, look, this is my work and my service of love. I'm actually inviting you into my work my way and my service of love. And um, it's this, the constant cleansings, the constant cleansing of one's walk and life in the love of Christ and in the service of that love. It was not a meaningless ceremony of humiliation on the part of Christ, like um, him, him having you not understand his role, but instead it was one where submission to the utmost was required. The action was symbolic. Um, it was to the daily consecration of our life to the service of love after the example of Christ. And I just love that thought that, that he was like, I'm inviting you into the service of love after the example I'm setting before you. That's what you're entering into right now. And that's a different walk. And that's a different lifestyle yeah and and that's the name that we chose for jesus for this week and the poster that you'll hang in your house is is or that you'll write on your your printout is is servant and and it kind of goes with that that quote i almost want to make sure we put that quote in the newsletter because um because i think people will want that to kind of understand that that he that he was setting that um teaching moment right these this is also part of his instruction for like you know if, you, if you're going to carry out the work under my name and in my authority it actually needs to look like this this is how it how it needs to to be and yeah. um and and i think that we would um so he's kind of bestowing that title upon the disciples and upon all of us but it, you know you read it and it's like i'm uncomfortable for him to be my servant, I, I, like there is something I think that keeps people away because they're uncomfortable with, I don't deserve that, especially from someone like you. There is, it really breaks a heart wide open 
to allow someone that you view as precious as him to submit to such a low level to do something for someone like you. And I think too, we were talking about this earlier, but it doesn't fit our vision of what leadership should look like. It yeah. just doesn't. In, in our mind, and especially in our culture today, leadership is delegating. Leadership is um, making sure people know you're at the top and what the expectation is for someone at the top. And that expectation is actually not for someone to do what he did. And so there, there is a little bit of him turning things upside down in that moment and saying, let me show you what leadership actually looks like, because it, it might not look the way you've always thought it was going to look. And what it, what it does look like is me, you know, taking off my nice garment of clothing and, and dressing down and getting out a towel and doing the work that seems too menial for a servant or for a leader to do. And it's so interesting when he says in verse 15, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Mm. Like you do the work nobody else wants to do. You do the task that seems beneath you. You get in and, and work in the place where people are in the trenches. That's where Jesus led in the margins and in the trenches and in the, you know, all those places, that's where leadership actually made the greatest difference. And you think about our leaders today and how many of them have you seen lately in the trenches? Yeah. And I think in John 13 context of I want you to do as I have done to you, not just in a, you know, a physical you know, that he, he, he actually cleaned dirty feet. And, and I think part of leadership would also include like mopping dirty floors and, yes. and setting up chairs and, and all of those things. But in a spiritual sense as well, where he's just like, get, be in the mess of people's lives. Hmm. Don't shun them or turn a blind eye to something that's like, uncomfortable or sinful or or whatever it is. He's just like, it's like to be a leader means to sit there. And as Jesus did for Peter, Jesus said to Peter, like, listen, your mess is okay with me. A a leader who is going to take his name Mm. would need to do the same and say to people, the mess of your life is okay with me. And give and and help them, give them a stepping stone. Yeah. To know that like that's how that's how Jesus feels too. That you're in fact that line, I cannot get over it. I cannot get over that line that you read where he just says, If I wash you not, you have no part with mm-hmm. me. And I think there is a definition of Christianity out there that would say, If you are clean every whit, you have part with me. That a definition of a Christian is is that, right. and he redefines it. Yep. And he says, actually, what a Christian is, is someone who has been washed by me, by definition. If you want to be identified as a Christian, then your story is the one who was a slave and then got set free. The one who was in chains and then they were broken. The one who was rescued by the blood of the lamb. The one who had dirty feet 
and I cleaned them. That is what, that's mm -hmm. what it means to be identified with him and, and as a Christian. And as a Christian, which I love because then it wants to go one step further, which is I will accept anyone who doesn't look like that yet because he accepted me when I didn't. And I will bring them into a situation where they can have that intimate experience with him. I'll make room for them at this table because I want them to have this experience. Yeah, and, and, and it will take you to that scene of that woman that we started with, yes. right? Where everybody saw her and said, what a waste, but they should have done. They should have seen her and said, why is she responding the way that she did? And if you really did give her the microphone, yeah. she, she would tell you a day of dirty feet. And she would tell you a day of, of slavery. And then you would know like, oh, that's why, that's why you're responding yes. in that way. And, and it's reflected out. What's your line about charity and grace connected from yeah, your book? To connect because, those again. Yeah, because <laughs> I, so I love that thought that charity is the outward expression of our inward understanding of grace. Mm. If, if we've been touched by grace and we understand it well, we will express it in the form of charity, yeah. uh, of giving grace to others. And it's interesting the order of that. He's like, I'm going to have you wash each other's feet only after I wash yours first. Yes. So that like what you do can be a reflection of what I've done to you. Yeah, which is so beautiful. Yeah. Okay, such a good week, y'all. But we'll see you next week. This audio was taken from a YouTube video from our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube at Don't Miss This. Also, sign up for our newsletter at don'tmissthisstudy.com and you can follow us on Instagram at Emily Bell Freeman and at Mr. Dave Butler. Thanks for listening. Bye.